Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I'm a former assistant director and your host. Today, we're talking about the unbearable weight of massive talent, the Nicolas Cage film that's basically a riff on Nick Cage. My guest today is Mike Trudell, who was the property master for the LA unit. Mike, welcome to Below the Line. Hey, Skid, how you doing? Good, good. You know, Mike, I met you first, for our listeners who don't know, when I was a guest on your podcast, Failing Hollywood, last October. And I've been looking for a chance to return the favor. Really glad you could join me today. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. I hear you're coming back to L.A. again, too, right? <laughs> as often as I can. I yeah. always try to get back to L.A. whenever I can. So Awesome. For listeners, a warning, today's conversation may contain spoilers for the film. Mikey, let's talk about the film briefly, just for folks who haven't seen it. Give them an idea of what the film is overall, and then we'll talk more specifically about the L.A. portion. It's not written by Nick Cage, but it's it's got his stamp of approval. It's a movie where Nick Cage essentially plays Nick Cage. And it's a riff off, like you were saying, a riff off of his real life. So we start off basically with his agent trying to get him jobs, and, and it seems like the only job he can get is by going to Spain and showing up at the super fan's birthday party who's super rich and will pay him a million dollars to just come out and, and do it. And as things start to unfold, we realize the guest is somehow connected to the Spanish drug mafia. And then the CIA try to take in Nick Cage to be able to help them infiltrate said drug mafia. And then fun ensues. <laughs> <laughs> what portion of this did you shoot in L.A.? So we were brought in for about two weeks and the focus was to just get a lot of a lot of missing pieces. First of all, if you watch the show, the, the main CIA agent is played by Tiffany Haddish in the original movie. She had kind of a, a lesser known, less funny sidekick or, or partner, I should say, helping her out and and doing all this stuff later on through this and through the reshoots, we were actually able to get Ike Barinholtz. So basically they took the other guy out and then wow. reshot all of his parts and added some with Ike Barinholtz. So all this stuff that you see with him, like the stuff in the van, um, the stuff outside the front of the airport where he's coming in and Tiffany goes and he's there with the camera. One of the last ending scenes where, where they're being held hostage or whatever, we reshot all that. And plus like, I think they also, um, cause I got the rough cut probably about seven or eight, like right before we shot it seven or eight months ago and we, we watched it full front to back and it was about almost three hours long in that rough cut. I, I don't know what it is now, <laughs> but I, I, I have an idea that it's been greatly reduced and there wasn't as many of the comedic elements to it. One of the biggest scenes that we shot, it took a day to shoot was they, they added the whole scene where he's going up into the security room at a uh, Pedro Pascal's character's birthday party in Spain. He goes up to the security room to try to like infiltrate and get the stuff off the computer um, with his little earwig, which had a lot of elements involved, a lot of prop elements, especially. So we took a little while to shoot that. And obviously the, the scene where they're holding them hostage. So a lot of those big pieces. So the scenes that were cut from whole cloth for the reshoots, you're doing the props from scratch on those things. Yeah, because those are almost uh, completely 
new like like the pieces that i said were completely new at least at least the the security room one the scenes were like they were being held hostage that scene was shot before i think in i don't know it was somewhere in eastern europe uh where they originally shot a lot of the stuff and they shot it but it didn't have the pieces they wanted so there was a little bit of a point of reference to that but this one like there were more guns there were more of a lot of things that kind of happened and they changed they kind of changed the action a little bit on that so there was a point of reference to that one but everything we else we shot was pretty much brand new in terms of props you didn't get a box of props from the set or did you were there things that you had to i guess even some of the specific actor things though right you yeah so you you definitely get a pile of assets and we definitely i had a conversation with the original prop master that did a lot of the stuff about asking where he got some of the stuff which a lot of it was just somewhere in eastern europe in the side street from street vendor so it's not like we can duplicate a lot of this stuff i mean we tried our best but there are some like very very specific stuff like he has a very very iconic ring that he's wearing in most of them that's kind of this giant double diamond that kind of hooks over and like sticks out that i mean you can't double that but that came in a box and there was like three rubber ones for like how many action (laughs) scenes they were so nobody got clipped accidentally and those giant glasses that he had in the opening scene because we had to shoot a lot of those stuff that played off of that again as far as the character props goes we got a lot of that stuff but then there was a lot of stuff like at the end where they come into the consulate and crash through with a jeep Uh, we had to get new license plates for that the knife that he had and the guns we had to redo that and get new stuff for that so none of that stuff basically came. We just kind of had to get stuff that we were either matching or that we could get brand new stuff from to begin with. Wow. And so you guys did that scene. Was that also cut from whole cloth new for the reshoots where they did the crash? Or is that we want to make more of what you'd already seen? It was more of what we already seen. So that one was a playoff. So what you saw in the movie was probably a combination of what you saw from what was shot in Eastern Europe and then what was shot here. We actually shot half in front of... Uh, the, the town hall in Pasadena that you probably famously known from Parks and Recreation. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the U.S. consulate, I guess. And Mallorca, <laughs> Spain is the same place where they do Parks and Recreation. <laughs> well, what other prop challenges did you face? I mean, other things that specifically were difficult or you were particularly proud of? I'll talk about that, that security scene real quick because that definitely was the craziest prop scene and it was super involved with Nick Cage. And I mean, I'm a decent... Uh, Nick Cage fan I think everybody is to a certain extent so I was a little bit intimidated to him because he kind of is a little bit of a living legend so being around him like I wasn't super like in his face other than like I mean there there was like little moments where he, he didn't talk much he didn't talk too much there was moments where he was like I think I would have a gun here it's like okay well Nick Cage wants a gun here you go <laughs> But for that one, it was like it was super involved because the beats to the scene and what was scripted was pretty much all right. He he goes up to find the security room. The CIA has supplied him with a pouch and, and it's not, not very specific. Like it's on me to figure most of the stuff out. But it's just like, oh, some sort of pouch. And he pulls it out of his jacket. And that's like the kit that the CIA gave him. And whenever you get a kit, I mean, it. The scripts are usually vague, and this is like the biggest prop challenge is to try to figure out to get something that everybody's happy with. And the more that they pull out, the more complicated it gets. And you have to do it all in part for the actor so they can do all this stuff in the same beats and make it make sense without confusing them. And with Nick Cage, since you don't know what's going on in his head, because the most words that he ever says to you is, yep, and okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's, that's that's pretty much it. So so it's like he's a very hard person to read. 
doesn't joke around too, too much. But what was scripted is he pulls out a pouch. Out of the pouch, there's a key fob uh, of some sort of, like uh, to buzz him into the room. So he puts it in, and we had to get that, and I had to get a little light switch to put it in. He, he puts on the thing, and then he gets buzzed in. So he buzzes himself in, and then he has to pull out two mini spy cameras from the thing. And so the, the CIA back at their trailer or their truck or whatever can see what's going on. So we put magnets on him so he, they can just put him up wherever he wanted in the room as easy as possible. And he pulled those out of the pouch and put them on. And then he needs to take out a flash drive from the same pouch and put it into the computer and start doing some stuff on the computer. And then, of course... Uh, the conflict comes in. They see somebody coming from with a gun to try to like invest like, oh, no, he's coming. Now you have to put on the poison agent on your hand in case he comes. And if you touch him, he'll he'll die because the poison agent will go in. So I had to figure out that would be. And all it said in the script was it, he puts a poison agent on his hand. <laughs> Not a lot of guidance. No, not a lot of guidance there. So we just like I talked to the director. I was like, so so what is this? He's like, I don't know, but you can't be able to see it. But we need to know he's putting it on his hand because it has to be invisible to the people. <laughs> I was like, okay, so he's gonna put something invisible on his hand, and we gotta make it visible and then invisible. Sure. <laughs> so. What we came up with, like through a bunch of trial and error, was I don't know when you go to the hospital, they put on where the needle is uh, for dressing on your IV and stuff like that. These things called tagaderms. It's almost like a, a tape that molds to your skin, but it flexes and everything, and you can't really notice it unless you like super look. And then we took a tape called Crazy Red, I think is what we call it in the film industry, and it's just a red strip that you can easily take off, and that's translucent also. So we kind of kept it loose. It was kind of sticky on one side with the crazy red on. So we had to put it in the pouch to where it didn't stick to the side super easily. So when the, when Nick took it out, he could slap it on his hand cleanly with no bends without sticking to the side and <laughs> pull off the thing. So prop master's worst nightmares. Like, okay, <laughs> let's just hope it goes well <laughs> and have 30 different resets. That way we can at least try it a bunch of times and hope we're not like going against it. Yeah, so you had to like be prepared for a reset as well, as you mentioned. That like, oh, it yeah. could be again and again on this. Never mind changing the camera, just getting it right. Yeah, so we had a table outside with like 30 of these ready to go. And that's not even the end of it. Like He pulls that out, puts it on, pulls out the big red, and then is like confused and goes out. And then he accidentally walks out of the door with the key fob inside. It closes, and then he wipes his brow. <laughs> so he accidentally poisons himself. And then they go, well... We have an EpiPen type thing, which is a special EpiPen that we needed to find or make that didn't look like your typical EpiPen. It has to look futuristic, nice CIA new thing. So it's like, okay, we found this thing <laughs> and then it's back inside. So he has to scale the ledge of the building outside to try to go in while he's being knocked out by this drug that's supposed to kill you and find the EpiPen, get it out of the pouch, put it in. What's that? That's like eight or nine props that are in this pouch. <laughs> and most of the stuff they want to do in like especially the wide in one take <laughs> so i was like okay <laughs> the way of one watching the cage it doesn't seem like it's gonna i feel like this is gonna be horrible for him and it's gonna be super confusing so i did my best to try to explain it to him and like i said like the most you get out of nick cage is like okay yeah you take this out you put it here and then he just okay <laughs> okay <laughs> i was like yeah then you put the sticky on you peel this all right all right and then <laughs> it's like you stop and look at him and he's like and after i told him everything he's just like contemplating everything and looking around and it's going through his head and then he just like looks down at the ground and up and he goes all right this could work <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> all i'm thinking is god i hope so <laughs> 
Did it? Did it work on the day? I mean, that sounds like a nightmare. Yeah. First take, did it perfectly. You can tell why this guy's a freaking pro because he just did it so fluidly, put the sticky right on the hand, first take. I think we had one or two takes where it kind of didn't look amazing with the sticky piece, but nine times out of ten, it worked out really, really well. And I think it just attests to how good of an actor uh, Nick is and how long he's been doing it because, I mean, that's the one scene out of the whole movie where I was kind of shaking. You know what I mean? Like, come on, please go well. Like, this has got to be good, you know? Now, what kind of prep time did you have for this? I mean, again, how did you get involved? How much prep? How did it sort of schedule out? It's a weird story. So I was in between jobs. I, was, I just finished uh, American Horror Story season one, and I was kind of waiting because I had already agreed to them that I'd come back for season two. So I didn't want to do anything crazy. I was mostly doing commercials at the time, and I was helping my buddy out, the prop master, who does a little show called Westworld. So I was bouncing in and out with him and he picked up something at the time um, on the side and, and kind of took it. So he thought he was just going to jump into the reshoots for a different movie. He did um, a movie that you may have seen the trailer just dropping called Bullet Train. So he picked up this movie thinking it was Bullet Train. And then once he got into the first few meetings, he was like, wait a minute, I thought this was Bullet Train. <laughs> Come to find out, no, it's this Nick Cage thing. And he wasn't fully vaccinated either at the time, and it was a full vax set. So pretty much after he had already started getting up and going, and he asked me if I could just help him out on it. Like one day I showed up at the office and he goes, well, Mikey, it's your show now. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how I, I kind of got involved with it by accident. <laughs> it turned out to be fine. <laughs> but uh, he left and went back to Westworld, and then I... Uh, kind of took up the slack for him and brought in a couple other people. It was uh, probably about six days of prep. So six days to figure it out. They didn't let me take out my whole prop trailer on it just because it was pickups. So they rented us like a small cube and we kind of cross-loaded everything at, from my trailer that we'd possibly need. We did a lot of airport scenes. Uh, we did like a car heist scene. We did a lot of things like that. So we kind of got as prepped for that stuff as we could possible. Anything that we could possibly think of could go wrong that to be prepared for. And, and we did that. We did some Pedro Pascal scenes and some like little clips of picking some stuff up too. Like we did the part where they're jumping the fence to try to go when they're tripping on acid. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, we did a couple of those pieces, like I said, comedic elements just to try to add to it and make it a little bit more funnier at times. Were there other scenes that were specifically challenging or that, uh, you remember clearly from from trying to pull this one together? I would say the one that I mentioned was the most challenging one. I, um, aside from that, it was the the actual final, not the heist scene, but the 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 one where they have them captive with Ike Barinholtz, just because there were a lot of guns. And it was right when that was, I, I don't think the Alec Baldwin thing had started happening, but it was like a, a kind of a questionable thing of whether we would use blanks or not and stuff like that. So that was... A little bit concerning because I had to be like front and center about everything. And we had probably five or six lot, like real firearms on set that day. So that one was just, I, I wouldn't say challenging, but stressful for different reasons. Just because I was the sole one that had to be handling that and worried about that and responsible for all that stuff. We didn't end up actually using any blanks. We had them prepared, and but we didn't actually need them. Uh, mostly because Nick doesn't like to use blanks if he can. I mean, now... For more reasons, I think almost every actor doesn't like to use blanks at the moment. <laughs> yeah. How was it with the actor? You said you had a little bit of time with Pedro Pascal. Was he any more um, verbal than Nick Cage was? As far? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Pedro, 
he was a very, very friendly guy. He, he was incredibly friendly. Um, he's always joking around and he, he always is walking around and like talking with the grips and stuff like that. I had a weird interaction with him. I was actually wearing a, a Grogu shirt t-shirt one morning and i don't i don't i don't like to like look at i don't realize the shirts i'm grabbing in the morning a lot of <laughs> like if you're looking at colors and making sure that they match and they're fine or whatever so like i grabbed it and like without realizing i'm wearing a mandalorian shirt we're shooting a, a theater scene with them and then a lot of like other pickups where uh, like there's like a Neil Patrick Harris piece. I think that was just like a tiny little piece we needed to get and, and a lot of that stuff. So, so we had Pedro there and I think I was propping him up. He had a, he had a couple big watches and a, a couple big rings and stuff like that. And <laughs> I'm putting on his watch and his rings. And then he's looking at me and goes, Oh, you're going to really do this to me right now. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't know what he was talking about. <laughs> Like I said, I'm oblivious sometimes. <laughs> so I was like, what? And he pointed to my shirt and I was like, oh, I swear to God, this was not intentional. He goes, uh-huh. <laughs> and then he ended up complimenting the shirt because I think it was like, it, it was a, it was probably like a Comic-Con, like independent design a t-shirt. One of the ones that you kind of get from the artist, uh, artist alley vendors or whatever. So uh -huh. he's like, oh, I've never seen that one before. I really like it. And after <laughs> I got it and everything like that, I think I gave him the card of the vendor. <laughs> Like, yeah, you, I, I can't imagine that you're going to go around wearing a Grogu shirt, but <laughs> he was kind of nice. Really good guy. Now, what about when you're shooting? Um, you said Ike Barinholtz came in to replace someone else. And so Tiffany Adders is basically reshooting all the scenes that she has with him. What's it like for those actors? How were they? And then just again, the idea of doing something again. I, I'm just curious about the dynamic on set for those scenes. I think they were all about it. I mean, Tiffany, I didn't have to, I had a little bit of interaction with Tiffany. She doesn't, she kind of keeps to herself a lot with the crew or just the actors and the director, I guess, which is fine. There's a couple actors like that. Ike was very, very friendly, but I think, I think they were just uh, like, nobody had an issue with it or a problem with it. I think they, they knew why we had to do it and they, they knew how. And I think honestly, if you watch the original cut with the old guy, Ike definitely adds like a whole new element. Like a lot of the lines that Ike actually said were not scripted. Like it was just a lot of him rolling with it. Like, uh, I don't know. There's like a line in the car where he's looking at it and she's like, Oh, have you even seen Cruz?" where he just goes, no, I'm a 40 year old man. I've seen face off like stuff like that. Like that was all improvised. You know what I mean? So I mm -hmm. think he brings as coming from a comedic background and just being a comedian, especially with Tiffany Haddish, who is also a comedian, which clearly I don't think the other guy was that is they were able to bounce off each other better. And it was a lot of laughs when they were going and just them just riffing. That's kind of my favorite parts about being on sets is when you let people who are really like, especially comedians who are, that's their art, like letting artists just go at it and just riff. And that's usually where you get your best lines. So I think redoing it wasn't really an issue for everybody just because the, the stuff that you're getting is so fresh and new anyway, that it doesn't feel like, it's a redo of stuff. And I mean, Ike Barinholtz is just fucking gold in this movie. <laughs> yeah, no, I would agree. And what was it like working with Tom Gormkin, the director who also wrote the film? Yeah, him and the writer were really, really close. Um, they were actually a lot younger than I, I was expecting. Like when I first went into the meeting or whatever, because like I'm not ageist or anything, but I'm a younger guy myself. So <laughs> I, I still get intimidated a little bit going on because I, I mean, within the past like five or six years is just when I started getting into the bigger, higher budget world. So I still do feel intimidated time to times 
like uh, going into a lot of these bigger sets and situations. So when my first meeting with them, um, going to the room, I was surprised just to see how young he was. But uh, with that, he was also hungry and and really into uh, the art of the script and everything and what they were doing. And he was just a very, very positive guy. So really, really cool guy, really easy to talk to, really easy to riff with and come up with a lot of the ideas. So that's what we're saying, like the tape on the hand. And I think that's why a lot of uh, these writers kind of leave it open ended is to leave room for the director to be able to direct and put their stamp on it. Because I'd say a lot of the stuff we came up with was mostly with his help. Like it was, uh, it was going through a few trials and error, but uh, like uh, with him all the way being like, okay, a little closer, closer. Yep. There you go. Right there. You know what I mean? And uh, he gave really good direction to be able to kind of find and uh, give me a really good idea of exactly what he wanted. So um, I had a really good experience with him and it was very positive. It was mostly all smiles. Like he's not a yeller. You have a lot of these directors, like uh, I wouldn't say yeller as much like, like Nolan and I mean, Tarantino and Michael Bay, who are just infamous for just not being the most fun to work with. <laughs> like their sets may be infamous, but like uh, I'll take working with directors like this any day over working directors like that. Ones that like you don't have to be walking on eggshells. Like you don't have to be afraid to like bring up a suggestion or, or to, to pitch something, pitch an idea. You know what I mean? Like he was very open to taking in any of that and letting people kind of express and do what they do best i credited tom as the writer but also kevin etten was a writer and producer on it as well and so you're saying was he still involved in getting the reshoots as well like you met with both of them so yeah extremely he was they they shared an office together they were completely at the other side of the office kind of just facing each other they very much made all the decisions together and and with each other's blessing now, give me an idea of like how the crew comes together. When it is a short shoot like this, a couple of weeks, I don't know, you got to bond pretty quick uh, with the other departments, but you don't know all these people. Were there other folks you'd worked with before? Or just how did that come together for you? I don't think there was actually. <laughs> yeah, it was it was fairly new. I think you're right when you say it's like you kind of have a bond like a, what was it, on American Horror Stories. I've been working with these guys for a year and a half at this point. So like, you know them very well, you have a, a very good relationships. And I think we're like cross departmental stuff goes like, there's always a weird thing. Like it's like where will sometimes we need electricity uh, at our car to charge phones, like stupid little things like that. You know what I mean? Like set prop phones. And it's always like kind of walking on eggshells for the first couple times going over to electric and being like, Hey, uh, do you guys <laughs> just cause you don't have the relationship yet. It's not like anything bad. It's not like they're bad people. It's just like when they're super busy, last thing you want to go is like, Hey, I need to charge our phones. Uh, can you run us a line to charge our phones? Um, this Every single person on the show was very friendly and easy to get along with right away. So nobody gave any lift. Everybody was just uh, super positive. And it was a fun set to work on. And I think uh, I think it goes into the comedic element stuff. Like uh, on sets, drama-driven sets tend to be, I don't know, they, they're sometimes less serious. I don't want to say that's always the case because, I mean, you hear like shows like Ozarks and stuff like that, like some of the greatest crews in the world that people would like love, like, they, they would never leave that show for a million years for anything else and, and stuff like that. But comedic sets tend to have better energy. You know what I mean? I think coming in and just do funnier stuff helped. <laughs> so everybody was easy to get along with. Uh, the cross mental departments, nobody gave any lip or there was a, there was a bunch of stuff like, uh, I don't know, like there was a lot of stuff with the car. Like we shot that in an airport hangar. <laughs> 
like the area, same area where we shot him getting off the plane and, and walking in. We just picked up a hanger and was like, all right, this is our stage now. And they threw the van in and then they just put a giant big screen TV behind the van and played like street <laughs> on it. <laughs> and then they just had grips behind it with a piece of wood, like making the car go up and down and, and looking like it's moving around. Good old some movie magics. And, uh, and then that was it. <laughs> so it was just like a lot of like cross departmental things just thrown in and trying to make everything work the best we can. And everybody worked really well together. Well, the film came out great. Really enjoyed talking to you about it. I don't know we're going to call it a wrap, but Mikey, great seeing you again. You too. Listeners, I always appreciate your feedback. You'll find my contact info at our website, below the line, one word dot biz. That's B-I-Z. You'll also find past episodes and links to all of our social media, so check it out. So, Mikey, you mentioned American Horror Stories. Is that season two we're going to see your work on? Yeah, yeah. If you go check it out, uh, it'd be on Hulu. It's currently airing, so there'll be a whole bunch of new episodes coming out soon. It should be a couple already ready. And how's your podcast going? Tell folks more about that, where they can find you. Podcast called Failing Hollywood. Skid's been on an episode before. We kind of take in a lot of similar people that you do, but it's it's kind of more of a chilling at a bar environment. We talk about their work a little bit, but it's more bullshitting and uh, <laughs> playing games and, and just uh, just talking about movies and stuff. So yeah, if you want to check that out, check it out. Failing Hollywood, wherever podcasts can be found. Well, I had a great time uh, on your show. Uh, I look forward to doing it again sometime, Mikey. Thanks again. Yeah, hopefully sooner than later. Thanks also to Curtis Five for our music, John Juan for our logo, and to all our listeners, I appreciate you. Please rate us wherever you get your podcasts and tell your friends. Thanks again from Below the Line. When we're talking about uh, Nick Cage's roles, I do want to say, and it really doesn't have anything to do with what we're talking about today, but I loved him in Pig last year. I don't know if you saw it. Oh, really? Yeah. I never saw it. <laughs> oh, that's one of my top three of the year. So you should definitely go check that out if you're looking for a serious Nick Cage role. Uh, I mean, a Nick great Cage film. says it's one of his like favorite roles that he's ever played. So, uh, I mean, it's got to test to something. <laughs> <laughs>